Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On the case of Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod and the National Police Manhunt for them, we spoke with Chris Voss, former FBI chief hostage negotiator, also with Dave Perry, investigator and ISN founder and CEO, Dr. Lee Mellor, criminologist and profiler, and Warren Farrell, the author of The Boy Crisis, talked to us about what it is that leads boys to become killers. On the issue of police officers and what they experience, Tom Stamatakis, the executive director of the Canadian Police Association, spoke about a Quebec officer who committed suicide after witnessing the horrible brutality of a father toward his children. And there was the story of an Aboriginal woman in Canada. Her drunk driving minimum sentence was set aside by a judge. Harry Goldkind, criminal lawyer and media commentator, said his piece. And Travis Begitti of the Bear Clan Patrol about why they were in northern Manitoba. So what would happen were there a police negotiation for surrender by Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod? What would happen if that were to take place? What might be expected? Chris Voss is former FBI lead international hostage negotiator. He's a university professor, a business entrepreneur. His book, Never Split the Difference, is number 18 on Amazon Today and uh, on the most read nonfiction list for 50 weeks. That's Never Split the Difference. Chris Voss joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Good to speak with you again, Chris. We always seem to be talking at times when terrible things have happened. Hey, Roy. Um, I'm happy always to speak to you, and if we can add some sense and some clarity to any of this, then hopefully we do some people some good, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if I were to ask you, and we know that these two young men, 18 and 19 years of age, were friends from the time they were children, and now they've, they're have um, they suspected in two murders and charged in a third, from your understanding of the kinds of personalities that blend and bond and create this kind of activity, what are police dealing with? Well, you know, uh, a little bit more that I, the police are going to want to know, and they're probably getting the information. Um, are they finding any any diaries, any writings, any correspondence that gives a, a insight to the mindset of, of these two uh, young men? Now, our... Um, is this was this uh, completely impulsive? Did it happen? Did these happen because their emotions got out of control? Or were they unintended consequences? Those are the kind of questions uh, that police are going to want to know, so they can get an idea of what the future looks like to these two guys. So you if know, the f- they sorry, go ahead, Chris. Into, yeah, you know, do they, they want to die in infamy? I mean, some people would rather die in infamy than live in prosperity, and they got to get a handle on that. Have you uh, dealt with in, with cases that were similar to these, where you there were young individuals who created or committed a, a series of um, terrible crimes, and then you came into their lives? <laughs> yeah, you may, it sounds kind of dramatic that way, but the um, you know the DC sniper case that uh, that. Uh, I was part of a negotiation effort in bringing those guys to justice back in, seems like a million years ago, back in 2002. 
but it was a, a younger guy and an older guy, and uh, you know, one of whom has been given a death penalty, and one is doing, spending the rest of his life behind bars. But they were on a little bit of a, a rampage themselves. So I've, I have seen these kinds of things before. How do you expect a negotiation between Schmigelski and McLeod would uh, would go? Well, you know, you're gonna if, if you if you get them cornered and they communicate, that's a really good sign. Now, if they communicate at all, that that indicates that they're looking for a way out. And, and the mere fact that these two are on the run is an indicator that, you know, they're, they're not suicidal at this point in time. If they were suicidal, they'd have killed themselves, or they would have let themselves get caught so that they could engage in suicide by cop and force the police to kill them. That's a pretty easy way to die. But if they're on a run, that's a good sign that uh, they at least want to live. They'd like to see tomorrow. And if, if they'd like to see tomorrow then a negotiator can be the avenue to get there. So how does the negotiator deal with them? What would you do? If it were you, what would you do? Well, yeah, I, I'd, I'd get on the phone. I'd just say, um, hey, uh, it's Chris. Um, I'm sure this isn't how you plan things to go. And then let, let them let them lead. You know, let find out where they want to go. The, the shortest distance between two points is very net. And communication is never a straight line. So uh, if I'm willing to hear them out so that I can get a feel for their mindset, then I can get a real good feel as, as to whether or not I'm going to be able to get them out. I mean, if they're communicating, they're, they're communicating to either get out or they're communicating to make a point. You know, my Israeli brothers and sisters have something uh, that they call the killing journey. Are they still on a killing journey? Do they have a destination for that journey? What does that destination look like? Um, I need to find out if they're still on the killing journey and what their envisioned destination is. So vision drives decision. What decision are they going to make that's going to be based on what their vision of the journey is? Chris, what can you offer? How do you negotiate with people like this who are charged with murder, suspected of two more, uh, you're the police negotiator, what, if they ask for something that's well beyond anything that you could possibly or anybody could possibly provide them, how does the negotiation work? What can you offer? Well, they're, they're gonna ask for something that's well beyond anything that uh, the negotiator can provide. You know, the mere um, act of communicating, though, is a really good sign. You know, ideally, if they give me any indication that in any of their communication that they have a vision of the future that includes them being alive, then my job is just to get them out of their bad decision-making and get them into the decision-making where they live. And it may not be, it may be longer before uh, they get to where they want to go or where they want to be if they want to live. But, you know, you find out whether or not living, how uppermost living is in someone's mind. And, you know, if, and, and I have no idea, I'm not saying these guys are complete sociopaths, but, you know, the good thing about having a sociopath cornered is that a sociopath wants to live. The most valuable thing on a planet to a, to a person with no guilt and no conscience, if, if, and I'm not saying these guys are that way. But their life, uh, to that type of person, their life is the most valuable thing to them. And you get somebody like that cornered, they realize that, you know, to continue to enjoy whatever aspect of life there is to be enjoyed, they got to be alive to do it. 
You mentioned the DC sniper uh, snipers and uh, and your negotiations with them. What what's another case that we would recognize that you were involved in that particularly might be able to share something with us about that uh, negotiation? Wow. Uh, well, there's a lot of them. I mean, negotiated with a lot of terrorists, and terrorists are engaged in the same kind of same kind of killing journey um, that 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 any any other serial killer would be, or any or, or people who may have who may have um, killed by accident. I mean, myself and my colleagues are cornered on a number of different cases on cases that haven't gotten that much publicity because we talked them out, and the and the media. The media knows about it if people get killed. And if you talk them out, it's not as interesting to the media generally. Yeah. Uh, unfortunate that it's that way. Now, on, on that note, how important is it for police to provide the public with current information? In this particular case, there are many of us who have concerns that the RCMP have been slow, uh, reluctant to provide, provide information that's important to the public. Rumors have begun. The uh, Maori say there's, that's not helpful, but if we're not getting new information or useful information from the police, or we deem to be useful, um, then rumors will begin. So how important is it for police to provide the public with current information? Yeah, it really stinks to be kept in the dark. And that's one of the tough calls for law enforcement, because, uh, you know, sometimes to protect and to serve to the maximum of their ability, it would be to not disseminate information at any given point in time. Because the more they disseminate to the public about what's going on, then of course the easier it is for the fugitives to stay away from them. So it's a real thin balancing act to uh, to do the right thing, if you will, which might be to hold back information when the people that you are doing the right thing for, the public, don't like the way you're doing it at the time, will be grateful for it when it's over. But in the moment, uh, the intensity of, of being kept in the dark, and, and when the public's being kept in the dark, the fear of the unknown is the greatest fear that there is out there. So it can be particularly horrifying for the public when the RCMP is charged with making sure as many people as possible are actually physically protected. So a tough balancing act. Yeah, I don't want to insert any kind of humor into this, but uh, it's the, the fear of the unknown. It's the story of the guy who gets into bed, and every night he has a ball, and he rolls it under the bed, and it hits the wall at the other end of the bed, and then it rolls back to him. One night he rolls it, and he doesn't come back. Now what? <laughs> yeah, I, maybe maybe he needs to get his wall fixed. I don't know. <laughs> great, great to talk to you again, Chris. Thanks so much for the time. Always a pleasure, Roy. I appreciate the public service that you do for your listeners. You really are dedicated to your listeners. Thank you, my friend. All the best. Chris Voss, former FBI lead international hostage negotiator, the author of Never Split the Difference, number 18 on Amazon uh, today, and uh, uh, for 50 weeks on the most read nonfiction list on Amazon as well. Chris Voss. Dave Perry joins us, founder and CEO of Investigative Solutions Network, Incorporated, private investigating firm in Pickering, Ontario. You see Dave quite often on Global News. Dave, thank you for the time. Let me get right to that question that I think is for, at the forefront for, for many Canadians. Now, the RCMP suggesting McLeod and Schmigelski may have left Gillum, uh, but didn't provide anybody with any information on the direction they may 
have headed off on also withholding information for long periods of time, increasing, as I've been saying, the risk factor for the public, and doesn't do anything to stop the spread of rumors across Canada. What do you say to that? I don't think there's anything we can do to stop the rumors that are going to spread across the country. This is a a case that has grabbed uh, global attention, and you know, obviously, it's a it's a case that comes around something like this about once every decade. So, I don't think the police actually know or even have a strong uh, theory that they've they've managed to get outside the net. But I think they're putting that out to the public to make sure that you know we we don't do what we try not to do in policing, which is get tunnel vision and focus too closely on one area. And while they're doing that, these guys could be making them their, their way across the country to some other province. Let's talk about uh, the history of twosomes, male twosomes involved in criminal activity. Not always male twosomes, but there are some uh, some major cases. Um, there was Harrison Klebold at Columbine and uh, Schumacher and Nelson, another big story. Could you address that, the issue of male twosomes involved in, in criminal activity? Yeah, it's it's fairly rare, you know, unless it's something that's organized crime or gang-related, where people are, you know, part of an organized crime violent enterprise. They tend not to to do these kinds of, kinds of crimes, especially violent crimes and murders together. It's very rare to see a murder where two people have partnered up on it. It's very rare to see two people involved in a sexual assault, uh, but they do happen from time to time, and it's a uh, it's a bond that uh, you know the forensic psychiatrists and psychologists would tell you that's as strong as any that two human beings can make. And we saw that, as you said, in a couple of previous cases, and especially uh, Schumacher and Nelson, who who shot a police officer back in the 1990s in Toronto. In a very similar case, they took flight. Uh, they were AWOL from the Canadian forces, and um, they ended up making their way. And as we tried to catch up to them, and I was part of that manhunt and part of the team, as we tried to catch up to them, they, they managed to get across the border. And once they get across the border, the uh, the next thing that happened is uh, they were encountered, and I think by happenstance, by two uh, Maryland state troopers who just stumbled upon them. And when they, they went to investigate, Schumacher and Nelson pulled out pistols and started firing. So there was a shootout. Uh, one of the officers was struck, fortunately not hurt. It uh, managed to hit her handcuff pouch and therefore her, her steel handcuffs, which saved her. And they, they managed to down one of the two by... A bullet went through uh, Nelson's knee, I believe it was, and I, I'm not sure if I have the two straight on who got shot, and the other took to the woods. And then we're, again, looking at exactly what was is happening right here in Canada, mm-hmm. what's happening down in the U.S. with these massive manhunts through the woods, looking for, you know, petty crimes and uh, any other clues or indications that could get them onto them. Is there so, an expectation... Right. I'm sorry, Dave. Is there is there uh, an expectation it, among police officers about how a case or a, or a manhunt is going to uh, turn out? Like, when you when you, when you you see what's going on now with the pursuit of uh, Schmigelski and, and uh, Cam McLeod, do you have an expectation of how this is going to end? Well, expectation... Uh, let me talk about two things. The expectation and, and the plan. The, the plan in policing is always to even in cases like this, to apprehend the suspects without any, you know, physical harm, hopefully without any, any kind of a shootout. But a lot of that remains in the hands of these two guys. If, if, they, if they simply give up uh, when the police find them, then that's the way it will go. If they decide to shoot it out, well, then there's another way that that's going to go, and it's very unfortunate, but it's the reality of how this could go. Um, but, you know, they've been on the run for a long time. 
and let's just say for a moment that if they're still in that area and if there's if they're in those woods they're uh, they're probably getting to their reserves right now and by that i mean they're exhausted and completely bug bitten and uh without food and, and proper water without lodging they're going to have to pop out sooner or later or they're going to die in those woods so if they're still in there that's a good thing in cases like this we see them quite often stumble out with no fight left in, left in them whatsoever so there's no shootout there's no nothing they just simply when when they're approached by the police they'll put their hands up and do what they're supposed to do under the circumstances that would be the best way for this part of this uh, terrible situation to come to a conclusion yeah it sure would and, and here's an important piece to that you know they, they're going to be doing these crime scenes and you know these are these are homicide crime scenes and Forensically, they're going to get an awful lot of information, but with the remoteness of where these homicides took place, the only people that can really tell all of us through the police what happened and why it happened is these two men. Right. So the best the best case scenario is to apprehend them. They're not injured. Um, there's no exchange of gunfire. Yep. And a couple of trained investigators are going to sit down with them and hopefully get them to confess and tell them, you know, first of all, not just what they did, but why they did it. That's right. the part that puzzles me. We still don't know why they started this. Dave, I'll have to stop you there just because we are always fighting the clock. But I appreciate no you coming on. Thank you so much. Really good to talk to you. Thanks. Of course, anytime. Dave Perry, the owner of ISN, global news crime and security expert, joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. There's a sense that the RCMP is taking too long to get information out to Canadians, more than a sense. We, we know that we were told that they, Schmigelski and McLeod, may have left, headed out, found a way out. Someone who didn't know who they were may have given them an opportunity to go. To go. We don't know where, what direction, what compass points. Makes people nervous. And then they sat on that, the, the Mounties sat on that video of the store in Saskatchewan for a number of days. Makes people nervous. We hear, though, they may have traveled 1,400 kilometers in two days. That's about 900 miles. That's a lot of territory, a lot of distance for people who are being hunted by the national police and now the military. Makes people nervous. So rumors start, and really, if the RCMP don't want rumors to spread... And if they're counterproductive, then what you need to do is provide up to the minute, or maybe not up to the, well, as close as you can to up to the minute, relevant information to Canadians about where things stand and where the public can be most helpful and tamp down the fear factor. It's just common sense. I want to talk some more about this this issue of the uh, McLeod and Schmigelski. Dr. Lee Meller joins us. He's the author of Homicide, a forensic psychology casebook, and his podcast is Murder Was the Case. He's a criminologist and profiler trained in detection and psychopathy by members of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. Dr. Meller has a long, long CV. Very impressive. Uh, Lee, thank you very much for taking the time and, and joining us on the program. Let me start. Yeah, thank, yeah uh, thank you for having me, Roy. Yeah, l- let me ask you this: How do they see themselves? How do Schmigelski and McLeod see themselves? What's their view of 
of each other and themselves. They see themselves as, well, they likely see themselves as people who are outsiders, alienated from society, people that will never have a place in society, therefore they have no investment in society, people that have rage against society, and therefore they've decided to live out this sort of pseudo-commando fantasy together, and it's almost like a, a Thelma and Louise situation you could uh, the same sort of self-concept that the columbine shooters might have except rather than doing it in a single place they're uh, they're prolonging it but yeah they're they're seeing themselves as like these anti-heroes you know the first thing the first thing i thought about one of the first things i thought about was Bolton and harris and columbine yeah so who's going to be the leader of the two well, there seems to be a lot less information on Cam McLeod than uh, Briar Schmigelski. But from what I'm seeing here, I think, despite being younger, it, I would guess it's Schmigelski. Uh, Cam is described as just like a nice kid. That's pretty much what I've heard about him. He seems more passive, whereas uh, Schmigelski has been more active in posting photographs of himself online and uh, camouflage that kind of thing and usually what that's doing is it's foreshadowing this new self this new identity that he's as aspiring to and often it's when people don't feel that there are, these people don't feel that there is a place for them in society they start to fantasize about acting out against society in this way and becoming a, a man of action and and becoming relevant and so i see that in Schmigelski, but Cam McLeod, I don't think we've we've seen the same kind of photographs, the same sort of social media presence. So if I were to guess, I would say probably Briar Schmigelski is the the dominant partner, the Eric Harris to Cam McLeod's Dylan Klebold. When this thing comes to a conclusion, um, and if they if they give themselves up or if they're confronted by police. Do you expect that they will go quietly? I mean, if they give themselves up, they go quietly. But if they're confronted by police, do you expect that they will also go quietly? Or is there going to be um, uh, action? I don't want to... I, I wonder if they actually have a suicide pact. I would bet on that, yeah. So I would put $100 on that. It's just... It's these... Uh, if you were to divide multiple murderers into say let's say broadly serial killers and then rampage murderers which would include mass murderers and spree killers generally the rampage murderers you can almost see it as like uh, it's a suicidal act in the first place they know that they're not getting out of it and they don't want to because as i've discussed uh previously with you they they don't feel that they have a future they don't feel that they have a place in this world so you can think of this as almost like a suicide that's externalized first, like in the form of a homicide. I wouldn't be surprised. Like, I don't think this is what happened, but I wouldn't be surprised if they could potentially already be dead somewhere. I was thinking about that. Yeah. I mean, this is a big country. This is the second largest country in the world. They're obviously clearing a lot of it in a short period of time. For all we know, they're sitting in whatever vehicle they now have, I think the last time they were seen was in a RAV4, and they're sitting in that RAV4 somewhere where nobody goes, and there's blood all over the ceiling, and there they are. 
but yeah, they might choose to shoot it out with the police. I would be most surprised if they went quietly. Uh, that rap four was uh, was torched, was it not? Yeah, um, uh, potentially. Yeah. I'm, you know, this is moving so quickly that yeah. I'm doing my best. You know, we've got like a hundred. No, I, I understand. And, I, you know, I was thinking yeah. people, we've been hearing the experts and the residents of the Gillum area in Manitoba saying, look, trying to survive in the bush, if that's where they are, trying to survive in the bush in that area is going to be absolute hell. All the bugs, the, the terrain is so unforgiving. They won't have uh, supplies and won't have access to supplies. This is going to be a hellacious experience. They'll give up. They'll have to give up. They'll have to find a way to, to come out of there. And that's when I started thinking, and I'm sure the thought has occurred to many people, that perhaps they had a suicide pact, and maybe that's what they've actually done, and they may be... I don't want to take it too far, Lee, but uh, I hear you agreeing with, with, with what I'm suggesting here, that they could be dead, whether it's there or somewhere else. We may, yep. They may be discovered. Yeah, Gone. and you bring up a good point. I, I mean, I've heard that they've had survivalist training or whatever, but that's only going to help so far. And who knows how adapted it is. It's not like you can become a survivalist overnight. <laughs> it's kind of a lifelong pursuit. So I'd actually like to compare this with another case in Canadian history, and that's the case of Alan, I believe it's in the last name is pronounced Leger or Leger, and he was a serial killer in New Brunswick who escaped custody in 1989, and at the time he was the subject of the largest manhunt in RCMP history, and he was at large in the forests of New Brunswick, which, though not as vast as obviously the whole of like central Canada and British Columbia, it's still pretty sizable. And he was at large in the forests of New Brunswick for five months before he was apprehended. And they had all these Mounties out looking for him with the snipper dogs, but they never caught him. And what he would do is at some point he would get desperate and he would come out of the wilderness and he would attack a home, usually in the Miramichi region, and he would break into a home and attack the inhabitants. If they were females, he would rape them and, and kill them. If they were men, just kill them uh, brutally and often rob them. And then he would go back into the wilds. And, and he, he did this over a period of, of five months. And it was eventually when the winter came where it just became absolutely impossible to survive in that environment where he just didn't have a choice. You know, that's where he had to come out and he had to uh, carjack someone. And then he had this harebrained plan to, to hijack a plane and fly to Iran. Although the planes at the airport he was getting to didn't have the capacity to reach Iran. But the point I'm making is you'd actually be surprised at how some of these guys can not only evade capture in the wilds, but their capacity for survival. Now, Alan, Alan Leger was, um, he was a very fit, muscular guy and also a total psychopath, fearless. I don't know if these guys have that same constitution mentally and physically, but I just want to put that on the table. So let's look at the, uh, at Schmigelski and, and McLeod. How, what kind of bond has to exist between two individuals for them to undertake such a murder spree. Now, these two were friends from the time they were little kids, we're led to believe. Mm. Uh, Harrison Klebold, if I remember correctly, met in school. 
<laughs> so what kind of bond forms between the two of them? And when they left Port Alberni, supposedly to go north and find a job, was that ever their intent or was doing what they are alleged to have done and charged to have done, was that the intent? Well, I'd have to ask you a question there because I wasn't aware of that. When they left Port Alberni to get this job, uh, was it uh, like, like, say, weeks before, or was it a few days before? Well, it was, it was it was shortly before. Shortly before. Yeah, I think that that might have been a cover story. I mean, you do have people in your life who you have to explain this to, mm-hmm. and you can't say, well, we're planning on going on a killing spree, so you have to give them some story, and this is probably what they agreed would be the most acceptable story to tell other people. But that time in between, I think, was probably spent on uh, preparation and uh, gathering whatever arms that they do have. And maybe one of the reasons they've been so successful at evading the authorities is because they put that planning into it. You know, maybe they're looking at routes, uh, you know, potentially. So, yeah, I would guess that it was probably always their intention. Um, are they looking for, are they looking to put distance between themselves and their crime scenes, or are they going to be drawn, as we constantly hear, that a criminal returns to the scene of the crime, are they going to be drawn to return to what they've done so they can relive? Oh, okay, yeah. Well, in, if they were serial killers, they might, uh-huh. because serial killers has more of a compulsive sexual component to it. And uh, so, yeah, often we hear about police, say, staking out the funerals of victims, or in the case of the son of Sam, he would go back to where he shot some of the, his victims in the cars right. and would literally roll around in the dirt at, at the crime scene. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's more typical of serial killers. And really, they're not the same at all. I don't think that these guys would head back in that direction, but well, like especially not for that purpose. I don't think their victims mean much to them. Their victims aren't really symbolic of ever, of anything from what I've seen. We're aware that there's three, in, so in two in one incident, uh, a female and a male, and then another closer to where that burned out camper van was. And uh, that was, I believe, like a, an older male. And I don't see a pattern there. I don't see, you know, like a Ted Bundy thing where it's uh, attractive young co-eds. It seems to me that they're just preying on people as the opportunity arises. And usually that means that they don't really have much of an attachment to their victims. Therefore, they don't have an attachment to the place where they killed those victims. Okay, I have one more question for you, Lee. Can parents, other family members, friends influence the activities of McLeod and Schmigelski now? Can their own parents do that? Yeah, if they send them messages, we know the mother has tried, but uh, will they will they listen to anybody now from their past? I don't think so. I think that they've gone too far. I don't think that their parents understand their psychology enough to say the right thing if there was a right thing to say. And that's probably because they've been hiding the side of them for so long. They know that they're not supposed to be doing this. They've probably thought through most of the arguments in their head. And if they haven't, then 
there's the, then the, there's an incapacity to do that in the first place. And they've also committed to it. Like, what are you going to sell to them? Are you going to say, well, guys, you know, you might go to jail for, you know, 20 years, maybe 15 years. You could get a deal. It, it's just, it just, there doesn't sound anything to me that they could tell them, especially now All that right. they've committed to this and All that right. they were likely suicidal in the first place. I thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you've, you've given us a lot of answers, provided a profile, uh, answered questions about who these who these young men are. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roy. All the best. Dr. Lee Meller. And again, his podcast is Murder Was the Case. They just want their lives to come back to normal. We understand that. Can't blame them one bit. And uh, everything's been upside down in their community and uh, also in the First Nations community nearby with the McLeod and Schmigelski situation, crisis really, uh, in, in that particular part of, uh, of our country and a nationwide manhunt underway. Travis Spaghetti joins us uh, from the Bear Clan Patrol and uh, community people working with the community to provide personal security. All right, Mr. Begetti joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Begetti, thank you very much for the time. For people who in, in, in some parts of the country who don't know what the Bear, Bear Clan does, please please share with us. So Bear Clan is a community-based uh, foot patrol and mobile patrol that's um, regulated by residents within the uh, inner city of Winnipeg. We have, but it created um, a resurgence across Canada. So now we have over 40 chapters. Uh, Winnipeg alone, we have over 1,600 registered volunteers. And so just patrolling our areas on a nightly basis, checking in with community members, um, doing safety checks, handling like emergencies, just like this. And what brought you to to, uh, northern Manitoba? So a lot of the leadership that are in these uh, communities have the residents that are kind of confused of what's going on um, usually they don't have this kind of um, worldwide attention and just trying to go into the communities provide that sense of safety kind of reassurance that you know what uh, community members can also provide their own sense of security and safety and kind of like being that bear clan also kind of being that bridge between communications between you know what the police between the army uh, between the constables, between their leaderships. Um, a lot of people, uh, miscommunication going on right now, so we're just trying to clear it up. Can you talk to us about the miscommunication? What's what's happening as far as that's concerned? Uh, just earlier on, just about the um, report about the missing, or the vehicle that kind of started it off that was set on fire. People kind of thought that it wasn't a big deal, that it wasn't, um, it, uh, it, 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 it revolved around something else, but and calls were made, and there's actually there was no communications with the the police about that vehicle, about those um, people coming from BC, because they don't think that something like this would reach us. Do you have concerns? Do the communities have concern with the amount of communication that they're receiving from the RCMP? Um, it's not so much about the communication. It's just it's about staying updated and staying informed of like what's going on because for themselves it's kind of they want consistent communication about 
you know, what's an update, what's going on, what's something that they can do. And so needing to have that, that's also creating some of the fear is kind of like that, the unknown. It's something we've been talking about on this program as well today, and that is that there is concern that the RCMP haven't been as uh, as open and as frequently communicative with us across the country as they perhaps should be. We 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 were told that uh, that um, McLeod and uh, Schmigelski may have left the area, but we didn't know where and what direction. Um, it, it just has been, it seemed that the communication from the RCMP wasn't what it should be, which gave rise to, to rumors, which the Mounties say is not helpful, but it's also not helpful when we don't have regular and uh, and detailed updates. Well, keep in mind, too, that it's there's so many parties, there's so many people involved, and so, you know, a rumor can start very quickly, and that rumor can become widespread and kind of if that's the only information that they have, then that's what they're going to base their, um, you know, their fear upon. And so, even if it's not communication, it's just that continuous um, voice and sharing the information that's very vital, very important right now. So, will you be conducting uh, foot patrols in the First First Nations community? Uh, we're here just to act as a liaison for community members, kind of trying to provide them with like what we do as patrol, kind of what we do in uh, emergency situations as well. All right, uh, Mr. Bagetti, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, I appreciate speaking with you. All right, thank you. Uh, Travis Bagetti from the Bear Clan and uh, asked to go to uh, the Gillam area and by the First Nations communities. Don't feel like they're getting the uh, communication that they should be from the RCMP. I spoke with Dr. Warren Farrell, the author of The Boy Crisis, in February of this year. And that was at the time of um, a young man in Washington, a high school student in Washington, who had been in a stare down, you may recall, with a First Nations uh, elderly gentleman uh, with his with his drum. And it became uh, a cause celebre. There were um, assertions made that were wrong. There were... Apologies issued, media, many media got it wrong, and uh, and I spoke with Dr. Farrell about what's happening with young males in in North America, specifically uh, his book looks at the United States, but we're in the sense of uh, the boy crisis, facing similar situations in this country, and I believe there is a boy crisis. Warren, thank you very much for coming back on the program. And I got the fundamental question we're asking here, and we'll talk about your book, but one of the questions we're asking is, how do boys morph from uh, from kids into suspected killers in their teens? And we have two, an 18-year-old and a 19-year-old. Uh, they've been charged with one murder. They're suspects in two others. There's a national manhunt underway for them. They're best friends since, uh, since childhood. They're, suppose, I, I guess the word we would use is they don't particularly fit in with, the, uh, with, with their peers. So how does this happen? What's, what's, the, what's the cause for this sort of terrible morphing? Of course, there is no one cause for sure, um, but we certainly have um, we have a, we have patterns that sort of make it very more, much more or less likely. So, for example, in all fifty six of the largest developed nations, uh, there are um, boys are falling behind girls in every single academic subject. When they fall behind in academic subjects, 
uh, they're much more likely to drop out of school. The boys that are more likely to drop out of school and be behind in academic subjects, uh, the single biggest common, uh, there's 10 major causes that I've identified when I did, did the research for the, for the boy crisis, but the one major cause was dad de- deprivation. Uh, dad in the United States, dad deprivation is common to 90% of the mass shooters that we're constantly hearing about in the United States. Um, it's also common to um, and about 90% of the ISIS recruits, also uh, the, of the smaller percentage of female ISIS recruits. And in the United States, we have 93% of the, ma- of the prisoners are male. And of those 93% male, uh, about 90% of them um, are dad deprived. And so the, the dad deprivation is the single biggest um, hint that uh, boys will, um, will not have the, uh, the boundary enforcement that dads, dads tend to bring to, to, a, uh, to, um, to uh, the raising of their children, both girls and boys. Um, but when boys don't have the boundary enforcement, they tend to get much more easily sidetracked, <coughs> sidetracked by text, by video game addiction, um, by addiction to porn, uh, addiction to drugs, the opioid crisis, uh, twice as many boys die from drug overdose. Um, four and a half times as many boys die from suicide. Uh, so these boys, basically, the dad-deprived boys are basically hurting. And different from girls, boys who hurt tend to hurt us. They tend to act out um, or they commit suicide um, or do something very damaging to themselves, like become alcoholics or addicts of one type or another. Warren, when when you hear the terms like there's really no boy crisis what it is is uh, just concern that the patriarchy is worried because girls are doing better what do you how do you respond to that with deep sadness, I can't, it's hard for me. I have a lot of basically positive feelings about human beings, and when I hear something like that, it makes me feel I, I've never, let's say, I've never heard something like that from someone who's read The Boy Crisis. If you just look through the first five chapters on the, you know, on, on the fact that boys' um, uh, uh, IQs are going down, that their, um, their, sp- uh, their sperm counts have been reduced by 50%, that they are... Um, um, that they're the ones falling behind girls in every academic subject, especially reading and writing. Um, and the, you know, they're far, you know, boys and girls at the age of nine, they commit suicide equally. But as um, boys learn the male role, um, the, the male role that is supposedly part of this dominant patriarchy, all-powerful, uh, then we have to ask our questions, why, when they're between 10 and 14, do they commit suicide twice as often if they're so powerful and privileged? 10 and 14. And between 15 and 19, four times mm-hmm. as often, and between 20 and 25, uh, f- five times as often. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is this is these are indicators of real major problems. We, you know, nobody. If the woman who's talking, I imagine it's a woman who's saying this. If she's talking, um, she, uh, I, I would just ask her to imagine having a son and 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 get to the love part of you that would care about your son as much as your daughter. Understand that we're all in the same family boat. When only one sex wins, both sexes lose uh, this the idea that we were dominated by a patriarchy is really such a sidetrack um, we were not dominated historically by a patriarchy we were dominated by the need to survive 
and what women's studies courses teach, which is that uh, you know men made the rules to benefit men at the expense of women. Um, the rules that men made were in their area of responsibility outside the home. The rules that men women made were inside the home. And when men made made rules to have them be the ones that went to war and died, uh, this is not about male privilege. It was about male sacrifice. Uh, when men got married and had children, they gave up jobs that they loved to do, often jobs like um, beating a radio talk show host or being um, you know, a, t- a TV uh, a t- a reporter or a teacher or a musician or an artist. Those were jobs that were very fulfilling and rewarding, but they paid less, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> and, um, the, and so these, uh, but men gave these jobs up when they have children, not because of privilege, but because they knew that they had to okay, drive me, an Uber me... um, 60 hours a week um, to be able to provide income so that their children could have better lives than they had. All right, let me let me just let me just we, we can. I'd like to discuss that point with you on a separate program in the not too distant future. I want to come back to something you said before the break, and that is this is what really uh, caught my attention, particularly with what's going on in this country now, with an 18 year old and a 19 year old being actively sought by police, the national police and the military, in a national manhunt, and uh, charged with one murder, suspected of two others. You said boys who hurt hurt. Us and then I looked at uh, some uh, uh, a column that you wrote. Uh, I think I think it doesn't matter. I think it was last year. But you 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 wrote about the shootings that take place, and you you wrote about Parkland. And here's what you uh, here's what you wrote. I just want to quote this paragraph. What are the lessons we can blame toxic politics? Poor family values, violence in the media, violence in video games, access to guns, and mental illness. Each is a player. But our daughters live in the same homes, exposed to the same toxic politics, family values, the same access to the same guns, video games, and media, and similar mental illnesses. Yet our daughters are not killing. Our sons are. Why? Does this bring us back to absence of fathers? This brings us back to absence of fathers. That's the common denominator. Now, there are other reinforcing factors. There is um, you know, the, the absence of, uh, so when, when children have an absence of fathers in the home, they grow up in a female-only home, and then they go over to a female-only school, um, and they go from um, w- uh, women only as their leaders at home, women only as their leaders at school, and then we wonder, it's not, it really doesn't take a, you know, an author of the boy crisis to figure out that you know, when, when a boy has no role model, um, he's going to oftentimes seek a role model in a gang leader or a drug dealer or trying to prove himself tough and, um, and figure out some. And his, his Okay, look, I, I get that. I, my dad died when I was 12. And I was oh, with him when, when I, uh, yeah, I was with him when he died, and, uh, and and life wasn't great for us. My, my listeners know that when I was fourteen, I lived in a homeless shelter, and uh, we used to have to go to restaurants and ask them if they had anything, anything left over at the end of the day, so my mom and I would have something to eat. So uh, it, it it wasn't easy; it was rough. But um, I, I I came out okay. I managed to you know I, I got my life under control. I was uh, yeah I, I fought back when I was in my mid-teens and early uh, late teens, but then you get your life under control. It doesn't necessarily lead to violence, though, does it? Uh, no, it, it, do, it doesn't necessarily, and there's been some fine people like yourself, President Obama, President Clinton, that all had dad deprivation issues, um, but it, it, it's like 
when you read biographies of famous people, um, usually they come from either very advantaged um, situations or very disadvantaged situations. 97, 98%, I'm just guessing now, of the people coming from very disadvantaged situations do not do well. But there's a certain percentage that are really either whether it's genetically, biologically strong and motivated in some way to try to prove themselves or get approval or to prove themselves uh, an exception to the rule that have what it takes to sort of swim up above, you know, the, okay. the Look, all Warren, of things working against I'm sorry them. to interrupt you again, but we have about a minute here. Is the situation getting worse or better? It's definitely getting worse. So, for example, in 1965, only 3.5% of the Caucasian community um, were, uh, were, were fatherless. Um, 25% of the African-American community in the United States were fatherless. Now it's 74, 75% of the African-American community and 25%, I'm sorry, 34% of the uh, Caucasian community. So the fatherlessness issue has gotten... We're talking, about millions of, we're talking about millions of kids. Yes, we're talking about millions of kids, and I'm trying to work with uh, um, the Trump White House and also with the, um, the the Democratic presidential candidates to bring this issue up and to make it right. clear that this is, um, you know, Jer- uh, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said uh, there are two major crises impending in the United States. One is the crisis of, um, um, of cyber warfare. The other is the boy crisis. All right, I have to stop you there because we're out of time. But I do want to have you back on the program, and let's talk about Let's take some extended time. Maybe take some calls on the issue of the boy crisis. Warren, thank you so much for the time. Great talking it's, to you. It's always a pleasure talking with you, Roy. Bye-bye. Uh, Dr. Warren Farrell, his book is The Boy Crisis. It's a big seller. Um, there are lots of different opinions on, on what the, Dr. Farrell had to say. Well, this story, it's... Uh, very disturbing, very troubling. A Quebec provincial police officer and Scott Newark and I were actually talking about this case last weekend. A Quebec provincial police officer, the Cité Quebec, committed suicide this past week. Patrick Bigrat was only 45 years of age, but he was the first officer on the scene of the double murder of two children by Guy Turcotte, their father and Quebec cardiologist. The... Um, situation with Turcotte was he was initially found not criminally responsible. And then the uh, court changed its mind and said, yes, you can try him for second-degree murder. And he was convicted, and he's in prison now. He had been giving interviews saying, you know, when I get out of the psychiatric facility, I want to practice cardiology again and have more children. So the terrible personal impact on police officers of horrible situations they encounter. Tom Stamatakis joins me, executive director of the Canadian Police Association. Tom, condolences on the loss of Officer Bigra, and uh, it, that he was suffering was well known, right? Yes, my understanding is that um, both the organization and the association uh, had been in regular contact with him and had been providing him with support, but unfortunately... In this particular case, it wasn't enough. Talk to us about what it is the police officers face and how what they face, because you never know when you're going out for for your shift what's going to be waiting waiting for you. Um, what? How do you deal with the the destruction and the unforeseen that can ambush you if you're a police officer? Well, it's a challenge, and uh, we know it's a challenge because we've. Um, 
consistently surveyed our, our members on a regular basis across the country, and they tell us that it, um, they're struggling with some of what they're exposed to while they're performing their duties. Um, most uh, people who become involved in policing or any of the other first responder professions, you know, typically come from pretty normal um, type of family situations or grow up in communities and they're not exposed to some of the most horrific things that human beings can do to each other. So we take people that aren't used to dealing with trauma and horrific scenes uh, on a regular basis and then expose them to those types of situations while they're performing their duties and, and some really struggle. Um, we try and you know, provide uh, training through awareness and knowledge and encourage people to engage in appropriate um, types of lifestyle choices, regular fitness, proper diet, regular um, sleep, manage fatigue. The challenge, though, again, and an aggravating factor is most of us all work shift work and there, there are huge demands on our time and there's lots of overtime and you're attending court after working night shifts so you never really manage fatigue as well as you can and, and then you're exposed to these traumatic uh, incidents and that becomes uh, even more of a challenge. Yeah, and then you have the public reaction, and public reaction to workplace is not always favorable. I saw something, I'm sure you did, millions of people did, just a few days ago. A New York police officer, New York City police officer, NYPD, uh, being having a container of water dumped on his head by a gang member, and the police officer just kept on walking. I thought that takes so such incredible self-discipline to not respond immediately, uh, because somebody... Dropping water on you is it's aggravating, but you know if you overreact, it's just going to make the situation worse. When you saw that, when you hear these sorts of situations, how does that this reverberate in the policing community? Oh, it does. It, it, it's very frustrating to see that, and I and I think it's a symptom of, quite frankly, the people who should be supporting the police, uh, different levels of governments, the institutions that we work for, that for whatever reason. Um, have really failed to demonstrate the kind of leadership that they should be demonstrating when it comes to supporting the uh, men and women who are out on the street every day confronting these challenging circumstances because that's what they're required to do by their employers but that's also what the public expect us to do so it's really um, disillusioning and, and disappointing when uh, these kinds of inc incidents happen and there's not an immediate reaction from those who uh, are in leadership positions to, to condemn the actions but also take, take, respond quickly and swiftly to make sure that there, there, there's, you know, people are disincentivized uh, to engage in those kinds of behaviors because yeah. they're not only, I mean, sure, in this case it was water and it's frustrating and but there are many, many other examples where, you know, police officers have been exposed to noxious substances. There could have been other more dangerous substances um, involved. And, and then you see people get hurt or injured. And, and, and I don't think anyone should want to see that. No. The manhunt, the manhunt rather, for Schmigelski and McLeod, a uh, cause of worry for officers who may have sons of the same age or just a cause of concern for officers who are out there trying to get these guys and have no idea what they're going to be confronting. 
Hey, look, um, you know, police officers uh, r- routinely, daily work in environments that you have absolutely no control over. You typically have very little knowledge of the kind of environment you're going to, and you don't know what you're going to be confronted with when you actually uh, come across the, sp- the suspects you're looking for. So, of course, there's a tremendous amount of concern, and and this is, you know, really challenging work for those RCMP officers who are on the ground conducting the searches and trying to locate these suspects, which which obviously they have an obligation to do, but it, it is difficult and challenging work, and it's and it, again, it's going to have an impact on those individuals who are being deployed in, in that part of our country. Yeah. Tom, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for joining us. And again, condolences to the entire policing community on the uh, the loss of Patrick McGraw in Quebec. Thank you, Roy, and uh, you're welcome anytime. Thank you. Tom uh, Stamatakis, Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. Another story, though, that's been uh, making headlines across Canada, and that is an Indigenous woman in Ontario had the minimum sentence for driving impaired, that's three times the legal limit in her system, she was 22, overturned because the judge ruled Canada's impaired driving laws are unconstitutional. He also considered the fact that the woman is Aboriginal, only 22 years of age, and has a promising future. Now, as I understand it, that's all well and good, but it's not in the law, certainly not in the province of Ontario. Ari Goldkind is a Toronto criminal lawyer and media commentator. Ari, what about this case? Uh, First of all, where do you stand as a criminal lawyer, and what's most interesting to you about it? Well, good afternoon, Roy. First of all, as a criminal lawyer, it's a great victory for the defense bar and defense lawyers. Does that make it good for Canadians? Absolutely 100% not. It's a terrible decision. And for anybody who watches Seinfeld, where I'll say not that there's anything wrong with that, it's a terrible decision despite the fact that the judge is a wonderful, thoughtful, former defense lawyer, very well respected. It's a decision, Roy, that should be appealed in two seconds. It should be overturned in two seconds. And if I were mothers against drunk driving in Canada or anybody else who thinks impaired driving is a problem, what the judge focused on, Roy, just so people understand, in my view, the wrongheadedness of the decision, is that the judge said that giving this young woman a criminal record, this Aboriginal lady who was three times over the legal limit on a wild goose chase driving like a menace to society, he said to give her a criminal record would be, ready for this, Roy, cruel and unusual punishment. If you drink that Kool-Aid, you disagree with me, but that's my view. He said in part, and I know uh, I knew Paul Burstein, the lawyer, when he was uh, the, the judge, when he was a lawyer. I yeah, interviewed him. I interviewed him years ago. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with him. But what he said, and here's a direct quote: "Given the widespread discrimination against Aboriginal people, which sadly continues to exist, the imposition of a criminal record for impaired driving would only add to the challenges an Aboriginal person faces when trying to access educational and employment opportunities in the future. Uh, impeding those opportunities would." in turn, frustrate an Aboriginal first offender's ability to achieve. And then they talk about the uh, the Gladue decision, right, 1999. So the judge makes the case that it's uh, it, would, it would impede the future of this young woman and really brings into account the fact that she is Aboriginal, and if she were to be convicted and sent to prison, that would compromise her future. Well, first of all, Roy, let's start with the brass tacks. There was no danger for going to prison. This was simply a question of the imposition of a $1,200 fine. 
So let's be very clear here. This was about the simple imposition of a criminal record. If you buy the Kool-Aid, but now the criminal justice system, again, I'm not having my defense lawyer hat on, Roy. I'm having my citizen of Canada hat on. That depending on your color, your race, your religion, uh, you can walk into court and say, well, there's been a history of cultural issues with my race or religion, so I deserve the criminal code of Canada and minimums established by Parliament to be thrown out at the whims of judges. Some people will like that, Roy. But to say that her future will be impeded when she made the decision, this is different than most Aboriginal sentencing, Roy, where an Aboriginal person does something very, very much linked to their upbringing, to the frailties of their upbringing. It's one thing to be found drinking at a party. It's another thing to make the choice to get behind the wheel of a car. And if the argument is that her future is going to be impeded, well, you, you apply that, Roy, to the thousands of Canadians across the country who make the stupid and unlawful decision to drink and drive. Their life circumstances may be as bad, if not worse, than this lady. But if you go into court as a Caucasian or somebody else of a more majority group and use the same analysis about your future being absolutely uh, to go to naught if you get a criminal record, you're going to be laughed out of court. So I have a real real problem with this kind of identity politics, Twitter, hashtag stuff entering the courtroom. There has to be one law for everybody. Not in Canada. Well, I, I know, but the, in, in the case, let's just, let me narrow this down specifically to sure. driving under the influence. There have been far too many cases, and we've talked about them on this program in detail and talked with surviving family members who've lost uh, loved ones to drunk driving. And and it and really, if you sent to prison, if you drive and kill someone, the sentence is incredibly light. It's three to four years, of which you maybe do eighteen months. Um, and I've talked to far too many victims and survivors of, uh, of of losing someone to a drunk driver to be to agree with Judge Burstein. But so, what does the crown? What does the crown then? If the crown launches an appeal, they've got thirty days, right? Yep. So if the crown appeals the case. What are the grounds? Just straightforward, this is the law, and you stepped outside it, Mr. Burstein? So in, in a way, yes. I mean, the Crown's going to have to show, and, and this is the inanity of this decision. Again, I like Paul Burstein. I've talked to him. I've been in front of him. I've read him. He's extraordinarily well-respected. So this is not throwing shade at him. But the idea that it's cruel and unusual punishment, that's the part that I have a problem with, Roy. And just for people to understand, that's where the judge hung his hat. And if we're now living in a country where it's going to be deemed cruel and unusual punishment, we're not talking about putting somebody behind bars. All we're saying is a criminal record and you can't drive for a year. If at the end of the day, that's cruel and unusual punishment, imagine. I'll give you a quick example, Roy. In Toronto in a week, there's a sentencing for an Eaton Center shooter, a guy who shot up the Eaton Center, killed people, hit a young person in the head, two jury trials. Well, he's marching into court and saying, well, because I was raised as a black man and Toronto is a racist city, I deserve a huge break from my sentence. Now, that might sit well with some people, Roy, but it certainly shouldn't sit well with the majority of people who, as you said, and I'm not even saying you accept this, that there has to be one system of law for all of us and if you make choices, this is now go back to our case. 
this is not simply being found drinking. This is not a domestic abuse situation. This is not losing control of your uh, faculties for a moment. This is making a choice to take a car, and it is a weapon in somebody's hand. So back to your point about mothers against drunk driving or the penalties, I just think the law is such a, I want to say posterior, there's a a less polite word than posterior, when you get off so easy in this country so long as you don't hit anybody. And that's just pure luck. The idea now that you can be Aboriginal and drink and drive and this decision will be used somewhat as precedent so that you avoid the consequences the Parliament has said are there, that really doesn't sit well with me, uh, Roy, in any way, shape, or form. So, Harry, how much of the criminal bar, how many criminal lawyers, not only in the city of Toronto, but across the province, and maybe nationally, how many criminal lawyers would side with you, and how many criminal lawyers do you think would side with Judge Burstein? I would say out of uh, 10,000 criminal lawyers... 9,999 for a whole series of reasons you can figure out what they are would disagree with me but if you strap those 9,999 to a lie detector and said take your criminal defense lawyer hat off for a minute your livelihood how uh, we make our living and how we get noticed uh, that's a different fish but I can tell you Roy I am a huge outlier on this and I sleep very very well at night because I have been very outspoken that the impaired driving whether the numbers are going down or up, it is a completely disregarded offense in our criminal code. We see famous people getting arrested for it. It's just a DUI. Well, there are very few crimes where you don't go to jail, Roy, where you are literally at risk of mowing down people or hitting people. And the only reason you don't is because you're lucky enough to take a route home that there wasn't somebody else in the way of that you could mow down. Harry, good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. Harry Goldkind, criminal lawyer, media commentator in Toronto. When it comes to driving under the influence, as far as I'm concerned, one law for everybody. Far too many times we've talked to family members of uh, those who have died uh, because of drunk driving. And the deterrent factor in sentencing generally isn't nearly what it should be. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.